This is Macro Horizons, episode 96, The COVID That Stole Thanksgiving, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of November 23rd. As we ponder the positives of the upcoming virtual Thanksgiving dinners, at least no one will see how many pieces of pie disappear, and we can always just mute the relative prone to long, needlessly opinionated monologues. There is always one. And if you're struggling to find one, let us know. There's plenty of space at our Zoom table. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. The week just passed offered a few key pieces of economic data as well as some meaningful information out of Washington. We saw a disappointment in the retail sales figures, which does bring into question how the fourth quarter will transpire in terms of real economic growth. The increase in lockdowns has been very topical, and while they do generally seem to be targeted, With an effort to curtail the spread of COVID-19, the fact of the matter is that they will presumably continue to weigh on expectations for the slow and steady return to normal. There was a reasonable reception to the 20-year auction as well as 10-year tips. The solid supply takedown at these levels shouldn't be surprising, particularly given the bull flattening that transpired over the course of the week. Now, we did see a solid attempt in the beginning of November to price toward a higher rate plateau. This was driven primarily by the positive news on the vaccine front. But what has occurred over the course of the last week is a bull flattening that's been driven by the idea that the political climate in Washington at the moment will make it very difficult for several of the key emergency financing facilities put in place in the middle of the pandemic to be extended into the new year. And in fact, late in the week, we saw confirmation of this risk with Mnuchin suggesting that only certain programs are extended by 90 days and some of the key ones, namely buying of corporate bonds and liquidity in munis, are allowed to expire at the end of the year. The practical implications of this beyond what it suggests for year-end funding are that the Fed, in an effort to reassure the market, is now more likely to deliver an extension of the weighted average maturity of QE purchases. This will credit for the vast majority of the bull flattening that has already occurred. We do take a fair amount of solace from the fact that 85 basis points in 10-year yields appears to be the new equilibrium. Now, when we think about how the market traded for the vast majority of the summer and into the early fall, 
80 basis points was difficult to breach coming from a lower rate environment. So the simple fact that we have stabilized above 80 basis points does speak to the potential to have another bearish episode once we get through some of the policy uncertainty that will certainly dominate the headlines over the course of the next few days. The bull flattening should, at least in theory, also benefit from a pretty significant month-end extension demand as November comes to a close. So as we ponder the best timing to attempt to scale back in for some of the re-steepening impetus, the beginning of December holds intuitively a lot more promise than the holiday-shortened week ahead. This isn't to suggest that there isn't the potential for a round of bearishness in the treasury market, especially given all the positive vaccine news that has occurred over the course of the last two or three weeks. The range-defining price action we find encouraging, and as noted earlier, rates appear to be stabilizing, particularly in the long end of the curve, at a higher plateau than we have seen previously. This bodes well for an incrementally bearish beginning of 2021, with the caveat that we're talking about redefining the upper bounds of a range that will be in place for the foreseeable future. So one of the biggest developments late this week was the fact that we learned Mnuchin is not allowing all of the Fed's facilities to roll into the new year, despite Powell expressing his desire that the full suite be carried into 2021. Yeah, I thought that was a fascinating move on the part of the Treasury Secretary. Now, there's clearly some political motivations behind it, although that calculus is far too sophisticated for me personally. But the logic does hold, and I do have a little sympathy for Mnuchin's push. What he is essentially saying is munis and corporate bonds don't necessarily need the same support, given where spreads are at the moment, as the broader economy would benefit if they just took that money and used it for grants and bailouts and extension of the unemployment benefits, etc. So within the nuance of what the policy is attempting to achieve, it is a net positive in the event that Congress ratifies that. And my biggest concern is that regardless of what Mnuchin intends, what we see is that additional fiscal stimulus is still caught up in Congress and we don't have this steady push to get more money into the economy. The flip side of the argument is Powell's, and that is we are still in an emergency situation. The emergency situation warrants whatever we can throw at it, frankly, and the higher the case count, the stronger the argument to keep those programs in place becomes. This ultimately brings us to the question of how is Powell going to respond? I think the market has already told us. The market has bull flattened throughout the week with the idea that the next move from the Fed is going to be sooner rather than later. So think December 16th rather than Q1 of 2021. And it's going to be an extension of the wham of QE purchases. Yeah. And while I completely agree that sort of the nature of this announcement was a little bit surprising, at least in talking with clients, there wasn't really a firm expectation that any of the Fed's emergency facilities would be carried over into the new year. So the fact that we've seen the commercial paper facility, the money market facility, the primary dealer facility, and the paycheck protection program all carried over is a small win for the Fed, even if it's not every program that they would like to see carried over. I'd also suggest that the 
programs that are not currently being requested to extend were to some extent a victim of their own success. They were very good at compressing spreads. They were very good at providing liquidity in the corporate bond and municipal bond market. And as a result, there's less urgency on the part of the Treasury Department to roll those programs over. And this is an idea I think we've discussed in the past, which is that some of these facilities don't necessarily need to be utilized in order to have the desired effect. The fact that the Fed was there in the background, even if at very unattractive levels compared to market pricing, provided some degree of comfort to credit markets that there would still be the flow of capital in the event conditions deteriorated like they did in March and April. And circling back to what the market was expecting... You're exactly right that this narrative picked up steam this week, which is why we saw the bull flattening, as it's become increasingly consensus that the QE program will need to change in order to manage forward financial conditions. It's also worth noting that the programs that will remain in place ensure against a big year-end dislocation in the repo market to a large extent, certainly in the more traditional short-term paper instruments. Now, there might be some issues that result in terms of corporate credit and munis, but the emphasis on the traditional money market commercial paper sector, I think, is very consistent with some of the concerns that the market might have as 2020 becomes 2021. I'd also draw the parallels between the point that you were making about how just the existence of many of these programs functions as a net positive to the market with what we're seeing in QE more broadly. Think about the week ahead where we have the two-year auction at $56 billion, the five-year at 57, both on a Monday, and then Tuesday's 56 billion in seven years. And rates in the front of the market are at 16 basis points in twos. That's clearly a reflection of not only the Fed's ongoing commitment to monetary policy at the effective lower bound, but also the fact that the Fed's going to be in their buying if and when it's needed. I also think it's worth a nod to the fact that the bull flattening that occurred on the assumption that the Fed will be buying less in the very front end of the curve and more in 7s, 10s, 20s, and 30s didn't result in a net increase in two-year rates. In fact, all else being equal, one might expect that if the Fed is going to buy less two- and three-year paper, that rate should go up. The fact of the matter is that investors are interpreting the move as stepping away from a sector, but with a tacit acknowledgement that the Fed will step back in if front-end rates drift higher than they want to see. And in thinking about this week's compressed auction schedule, the fact of the matter is, even if QE is changing, we know that policy rates are going to be at the effective lower bound for a very long time, at least to 2024. And it's definitely been demonstrated that the Fed would be willing to push that window out even further if they felt it was necessary. Add into this outcome-based forward guidance around inflation, and really the story of front-end auctions are ones of market participants taking advantage of the liquidity that's being provided by the Treasury Department. Despite the record large sizes across the curve, we've yet to see any truly uninspired auctions, which is a testament to the Fed's credibility and the continuing structural bid globally for Treasuries. And as we contemplate what this all means for 2021 and beyond, our rates forecast is continuing to be refined, but 
the punchline is the treasury market is going to be in a range. The two, three, and five-year sectors are going to be in the narrowest ranges that they have historically seen. Tens and thirties become a slightly different story simply because that will be the part of the curve that the market is most aggressive in pricing any pro-growth reflationary narrative. That said, if we look at the outright size of the range in 10-year yields during 2020, there's no way that that is repeated in the year ahead. To put a number on it, I would suspect that 10-year yields hold a range of roughly 75 basis points. And the bigger question quickly becomes, well, what's the center of the range? Using where we are right now, call it 85 basis points in 10s, that would get us to a retest of 125 at some point in the year ahead. I would actually assume there's a higher probability of that occurring at the beginning of the year around the turn with optimism being priced in and or at the end of the year. There's nothing to say that just because dip buying interest emerges between 1% and 125 that the market won't attempt to reprice us back there yet again once the economic data improves as the real economy reopens, the vaccine is distributed, we drift toward some version of a new normal or novel normal as one might call it. And while it's incredible to say that the new year is almost upon us, a good question we got this week was, once the Fed has come and gone, whether they deliver the WAM extension or not, what's going to be the quote-unquote next big thing that investors are focused on in the first quarter? The short answer is going to be the distribution of the vaccine. There's little question that medical science has delivered what appears to be a highly effective vaccine, several of them in fact, and my biggest concern has quickly become how willing will the populace be to embrace the vaccine? And in that context, how quickly is the real economy able to truly reopen without the restrictions that have been in place? On one level, the protests against the lockdowns, both domestically and abroad, would suggest that state and local governments are the limiting factor in reopening the economy. I'll take the other side of that. I would argue that the vast majority of people are implementing stricter guidelines than the government suggests. There are far fewer people going to restaurants enjoying indoor dining than the capacity limits would imply. So as we think about what happens when a vaccine is readily available and embraced, that doesn't necessitate that people are going to jump back into life as usual. And looking beyond the point when the vaccine is utilized to the extent it ultimately will be, maybe sometime Q2, Q3, there is the prospects for the economic data to reclaim its seat as potentially market moving. I know it's been a while since we've been able to say that, but in thinking this through on your point, Ian, if people are reluctant to resume behavioral patterns that existed before the pandemic, what the post-vaccine data will capture is what in fact consumption, growth, inflation looks like in the new normal. We've already seen some noteworthy shifts, not just in the real estate market, but also surrounding goods versus services spending. And it's not unrealistic to expect that there's going to be some other more permanent changes that linger for years beyond this current episode. And in that regard, the data itself will be very important in calibrating what that picture looks like and thus informing expectations for what the new economy will look like 
and treasury yields will look like going forward over a longer term time horizon. I'll argue that what the Fed is most concerned about in that context is that some of the unemployment that was viewed as temporary transitions into becoming permanent, and some of the realities or the residuals from the work-from-home environment have longer-lasting ramifications for the composition of consumption and also the need to redistribute the frontline service sector firms throughout a broader geographic area. Said differently, for the next several years, urban centers will be shunned in favor of the suburbs, and it should follow intuitively that restaurants and entertainment, as well as other service sector establishments, will follow the move away from the cities. What that does is it layers on yet another level of uncertainty into the employment market. While there might be a degree of fungibility of frontline service sector workers between bars, restaurants, fast food, etc., the geographic considerations are going to be much more significant. And given the Fed's emphasis on the low to moderate wage earning unemployment rate, I think that that will keep the Fed's very accommodative monetary policy stance in place for even beyond the current projections, which have the Fed on hold at least until 2024. Which leaves one of the primary themes of 2020 carrying over into 2021, and that is that the shape of the yield curve is going to be entirely a reflection of how 10 and 30-year yields perform. We've talked a little bit about what we're expecting in terms of the range further out the curve next year. What's the motivation behind this zone being somewhat smaller than we've seen in years past? A narrow trading range in 10s and 30s is a reflection of a few key factors. First, as we've mentioned, the Fed's not going to move policy rates for the foreseeable future. In addition, it also seems very unlikely that the Fed will step back from their $80 billion a month treasury purchases via QE, at least in 2021. I would also layer on this notion that we've seen a very material transition on the part of global monetary policymakers over the course of the last 30 years. The push toward transparency and forward guidance has in effect collapsed volatility further out the curve simply through the process of providing greater clarity of current expectations and also a better sense of policymakers' reaction function to changes in the real economy. Think about where the market was in the early 80s, for example. In the early 80s, the Fed didn't even tell us where they wanted the overnight Fed funds rate to be while it was being executed on a given day. Fast forward to 2020, now not only does the Fed tell us where they want the rate to be, they give us a range for other rates around the primary Fed funds rate and a projection of where it's going to be for the next three years and even the long term where they think that the rate could ultimately end up. That is a lot more transparency than we had previously. And as a result, this building of Fed credibility at fighting inflation and stoking the real economy has translated to a degree of comfort assuming that the Fed is going to keep the market stable and rates at historically low levels. Said differently, the Fed is unwilling to risk the credibility that it would to allow 
longer in yields to sell off 100, 120 basis points. And turning to the most immediate problems, what do you have your eye on for Cyber Monday? Well, Baby Yoda, obviously. He's back. Now that's Chucky. In the holiday-shortened week ahead, the trading sessions will, for practical terms, really be limited to Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. But there's a fair amount crammed into those sessions. We do have the two, five, and seven-year auctions on Monday and Tuesday, as well as an update on durable goods, personal spending, personal income, and core PCE. We'll be particularly interested to see the personal spending data. Recall that during the third quarter, the GDP release revealed that goods consumption continued to grow, and while there was upside in service consumption, it wasn't as dramatic as some had anticipated. So as we move into the fourth quarter, with the backdrop of some reopenings in place, we'll be interested to see the pace of spending on services, because that will help calibrate expectations for fourth quarter growth. All of that being said, the bigger issues still remain the path of the pandemic and how quickly and successfully the vaccines are distributed once they go through the final approval process and presumably are released at the beginning of 2021. As this all applies to the U.S. rates market, we're in a range with 10-year yields focused on that 85 basis point level, 30-year yields closer to 155 as some version of equilibrium. We're not anticipating a dramatic repricing until we're into the month of December. And once we are in December, we'll get a better sense for the transition of power in Washington combined with how the Fed is going to address the fact that the Treasury Secretary is reluctant to extend some of the key facilities that were put in place to help provide liquidity during the pandemic. As it currently stands, the support for the corporate bond market and the municipal bond market are in question. And this has pretty clear ramifications for overall financial conditions, which in and of itself would prompt the Fed to be a bit more aggressive in December. And the market generally expects that the next step for the Fed will be an extension of the weighted average maturity of the existing QE purchases of $80 billion a month in the treasury space. There's an open question of whether or not the Fed would be willing to increase the overall size of treasury buying beyond $80 billion. Our take is that's certainly a possibility, but as a first step, a WAM extension should prove sufficient. We'd be remiss to at least not acknowledge the price action in the domestic equity markets. Risk assets remain at impressive valuations, and given the assumption of political gridlock and the positive implications for equities going forward, we'll be attentive to see if there emerges any potential challenge to the bullish underpinning in stocks at the moment. Given the technical profile, some of the overbought conditions have been worked off in the S&P 500, which clears the way for a slow and steady grind back to what appears to be the direct route to new, fresh record highs. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. As online holiday shopping picks up, 
Remember, that annoying little clock that implies heavily discounted items are temporary aberrations rather than an initial misprice or overstocking really is just marketing. Five, four, three, two, add to cart. Gets us every time. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.